minutes after John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malveaux sat on the ground handcuffed on that cold morning on South Mountain, the lingering back-of-the-mind questions about which jurisdiction would take them and try them first zoomed to the front of the minds of many people in government. Who would interview the suspects? Where would they be jailed? Where would they make their first court appearances? And most importantly, where would they be tried? And where in the world could an impartial jury be found? Muhammad and Malvo were captured by the FBI, state police, and Montgomery County police. They had been arrested on federal warrants and were picked up in an area patrolled by state police. They had committed murders in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Then it was learned that they had killed people in Washington State, Arizona, Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia. The road toward a final decision on who would prosecute them first and where would take a few turns. Six fatal victims were shot in Montgomery County and a seventh, Dean Myers, who was shot while pumping gas in Northern Virginia, was a Montgomery resident. So Montgomery getting first dibs was something that its elected state's attorney, Doug Gansler, insisted on. Montgomery County, Maryland was the epicenter of the crimes. It was the epicenter of the investigation. It was where the vast majority of the victims resided and throughout American criminal jurisprudence. Criminal cases are prosecuted where they occur. The U.S. Attorney for Maryland had different ideas, which led to a very intense and highly publicized feud. But in the end, the Attorney General of the United States wanted to put both defendants on the fast track to death row. And that track was not accessible in Maryland or inside any federal courtroom. I do think that there was a bloodlust that took hold in this case that exceeded anything I've ever seen. Presented by Law and Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers. To understand how Montgomery County and U.S. government officials got so incensed with each other in late October 2002, after the suspects were arrested, we must understand what transpired weeks earlier, right after the shooting spree started. Agents from the Baltimore FBI office got involved in the investigation almost from the beginning, less than 24 hours after the first known victim of the snipers, James Martin, was shot October 2nd outside the Shopper's Food Warehouse in Wheaton, Maryland. The story goes that Charles Moose, the Montgomery County police chief, wanted the FBI's involvement. The media reported at the time that there was acrimony between the county's top cop and top prosecutor. So Moose not only didn't mind that the FBI's presence would lead to the involvement of the U.S. Attorney's Office, he wanted it that way. Gansler disputed that when he spoke to me recently and said that he wasn't even aware such a media narrative was being pushed at the time. It's the first I've heard of it, so I would say it's overblown and not true. The reason why the feds came in 
was because they told him they were coming in. You know, they didn't come in immediately, but as happens in, you know, sort of every high-profile case or serial killer case, the feds come in pretty quickly. Gansler pointed out to me that his beef in 2002 wasn't with Charles Moose or the FBI. It was with the U.S. attorney for the state of Maryland. There's sort of the only bad person in this whole case, Tom DiBaggio, who was the U.S. attorney at the time. He was um, sort of working behind the scenes trying to kind of get the case in the federal system. He wanted to go his career on the case. Doug Gansler and Tom DiBaggio still aren't chummy. They never speak to one another. But whenever they speak about each other, they don't hold back. A day or so after the October 7th shooting of Iron Brown in Bowie, Maryland, DiBaggio and one of his top deputies showed up in Rockville to meet with Chief Moose. Gansler was also present for that meeting, and DiBaggio immediately felt a chill from Gansler after Moose called him in. He brought me in to the conference room, and I'll never forget this because it was quite an introduction to the investigation. He was in there with the state's attorney at the time, Doug Gansler, who I don't think I had met up until that time. And I walked in, and it was clearly tension in the room. They clearly had been arguing over something. According to DiBaggio, Gansler asked Moose, quote, What is he doing here? He has no role in this. DiBaggio described what Moose did next. Chief Moose was very impressive. He shut him down right away and said that the FBI is involved. The U.S. Attorney's Office is their counsel. That's why he's here. By the end of that tense meeting, all parties vowed to work together in the arms of law enforcement. After the suspects were caught, that tension between Gansler and DiBaggio heated up again. But first, there was the issue of interviewing the suspects. It was agreed that Montgomery County Police be the first to do so, and they were assisted by agents from the FBI and ATF. After they were brought to Rockville the morning of October 24, 2002, the suspects were placed in separate rooms. Malvo was handcuffed and left alone in one of the rooms while an ATF agent stood guard outside. The detectives were in one room down the hall discussing how to proceed when they heard a loud noise coming from Malvo's room, like the sound of something landing hard on the floor. Malvo had slipped one of his hands out of the handcuffs and had put a chair on the table. He jumped up, moved a ceiling tile, and the chair under him fell off the table. Malvo was still hanging from the ceiling when agents and detectives got inside and pulled him down. He fell off the table and onto the floor, and the agents basically fell on top of him. He was covered in tile dust. After he cleaned himself up, Malvo was moved to a room in which the furniture was bolted to the floor. During the interview, he didn't say much. He answered most questions using hand gestures and facial expressions. Muhammad was being interviewed in another room. By comparison, he talked more, but he wasn't making much sense. He mentioned his ex-wife. He talked about taking his kids to Antigua. He referred to Malvo as his son. After rambling for three hours, Muhammad asked for an attorney. He remained tight-lipped about his crimes for the remainder of his life. Montgomery County Police Detective Pat McNerney, who was a member of the Sniper Task Force, was watching both suspect interviews that day inside a room equipped with monitors. 
He also had a good seat for the meeting between Gansler and prosecutors from DiBaggio's office, which took place inside a conference room in the same building where the suspects were interviewed. The other part of the show was what was going on in the big conference room. There were representatives of the U.S. Attorney's Office and Montgomery County State's Attorney's Office. And the big discussion there was who had custody of them, the feds or locals. And that was interesting. Eventually, it was decided that the feds would take them. Regardless of how Washington, D.C. officials seemed to be leaning, Gansler very much wanted to get the case first, and his staff fully backed him on that. Gansler's top deputy at the time, John McCarthy, who is now the state's attorney for Montgomery County, still feels strongly that his office should have been allowed to prosecute the case first. You know, the investigation really began here. It was housed here. The task force was here. Everybody came here for 23 straight days working here. We had seven victims. We arrested them. They were in our custody. I thought they should have stayed here and they should have been tried here. Muhammad and Malvo had their first court appearances inside a federal courthouse. Not long after that, DiBaggio was summoned to the Justice Department. Officials from the Attorney General's office were there, along with U.S. attorneys from Virginia and Washington, D.C. They talked about who would get the first opportunity to prosecute the snipers. Toward the end of the meeting, Larry Thompson, the top deputy to U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft, stood up and announced to the room that the Muhammad prosecution would be handled by DiBaggio's office. No decision on Malvo was made at that meeting. Larry decided that the case would be handled by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland with one condition, that I had to partner with Gansler, that I had to designate state's attorneys as special assistant U.S. attorneys, and I had to work with Gansler as a joint partnership, joint prosecution in federal court. And that's, you know, Larry asked me to do that. I absolutely agreed to do that. So DiBaggio proceeded as though the case was going to be his. Ganser proceeded as though the case should have been his. He thought Montgomery County residents were ready for charges to be brought. So he announced in front of a row of cameras that his office had filed them. And that did not sit well with Justice Department officials in Washington, D.C. The feds were furious, sources say, as local prosecutor Doug Gansler walked to the microphones late today to announce that Montgomery County is filing the first charges in the sniper case against 41-year-old Army veteran John Allen Muhammad and his 17-year-old accomplice, John Lee Malvo. For six counts of first-degree murder. But watching the news conference at the Justice Department's, federal prosecutors privately accused Gansler of breaking an agreement not to file charges until the feds decide if they want to take over the case. In unusually harsh language, one federal official accused Gansler of, quote, exploiting this tragedy for political purposes. So how did the sniper case... Cracked only yesterday, up to now a model of cooperation between Chief Moose, the FBI, and ATF. How did it unravel so fast, with Democratic officials in Maryland today accusing the state's top federal prosecutor, Republican Thomas DiBaggio, of trying to steal the case away for his own political ambitions? Gansler would tell the national media that the accusation leveled against him that he was playing a political game was disingenuous, and denied there was ever an official agreement between his office and the feds. Either way, the arrangement that was made by Ashcroft's office to have Gansler and his team assist DiBaggio was spiked. DiBaggio told me that after Gansler's highly publicized press conference, 
Larry Thompson called him to notify him that he was taking off the condition that he work with Gansler. A few days later, on October 28, 2002, Thompson called DiBaggio and told him that while DiBaggio would be getting the Muhammad case, the case against Malvo would be handled by Virginia authorities. That did not come as a surprise to DiBaggio or anyone else. Ashcroft's office had been dropping hints all along that they wanted Malvo to face the death penalty. Malvo was 17 years old, and Virginia was one of 19 states that executed juveniles at the time. Maryland did not, and neither did the U.S. government. The following day, the Justice Department filed 20 federal charges against John Allen Muhammad. Seven of those charges carried the potential of a death sentence, but those charges would not stick. Politics is a very ugly business. Politics and prosecutions don't mix, and so it got really, really, really ugly. On the morning of October 30th, there was a bombshell, and it made the prospect of a federal prosecution less of a sure thing. The New York Times reported on the front page that DiBaggio's effort to have the suspects brought to Baltimore interrupted the interview that investigators were conducting with Muhammad and that interruption prevented investigators from gaining a confession. The paper attributed that information to an unnamed source. The same story alleged that DiBaggio had invoked the White House and Justice Department to move the snipers to Baltimore. DiBaggio insisted that never happened. Gansler insisted that he was never the unnamed source. As it turned out, the story wasn't even true. The Times would later publish a correction that the article drew a conclusion that was unwarranted by the reporting. The reporter who wrote that article was Jason Blair, who months later was the center of one of the biggest journalistic fraud scandals ever known. Blair was publicly shamed for his transgressions, but not until the spring of 2003. The immediate damage that article did was irreversible. DiBaggio, it seemed suffered the brunt of that damage. Six days after the story was published, Thompson called DiBaggio and told him that the federal charges were to be dismissed and that both cases would be tried in Virginia. DiBaggio was told that the Times story had nothing to do with the decision, but he saw it differently. Well, I would say there was a lot of really negative press. The Blair article clearly was one. Gansler was in the Washington Post every day. It got really messy. You know, Larry Thompson called and said, Tom, everybody has a boss. And uh, a decision has been made to prosecute Mohammed in Virginia State Court. So it was really as simple as that. So Paul Ebert, the Commonwealth's attorney in Prince William County, Virginia, where Dean Myers was killed, got a call from the feds. That same day, Robert Horan, the Commonwealth's attorney in Fairfax County, where Linda Franklin was killed, also got a call. Both Ebert and Horan were invited to appear for a press conference at the Justice Department that afternoon. At that conference, Ashcroft told the media, quote, It is appropriate, it is imperative, that the ultimate sanction be available to those who have committed these crimes, end quote. So it was set up that two of Virginia's most experienced Commonwealth's attorneys, especially when it came to death penalty cases, would prosecute the snipers, 
Karen Bosque was my editor at the Journal Newspapers. She wrote and edited hundreds of news stories in Prince William and Fairfax counties. And one of the figures she has the sharpest recollection of during those years is Paul Ebert. She knew good and well his reputation for taking on and winning death penalty cases. And when Dean Myers was killed the night of October 9, 2002, Bosque, who lived in Manassas, said what many others felt. Well, if they catch the sniper alive, Paul Ebert is going to see to it that he doesn't live long. That's exactly what I said. I, I mean, I remember, I think I remember, said almost verbatim something exactly like that because I said, well, that's it. Now they just wrote their death warrant. Paul Ebert, I think, actually came out within like a day or so and, and said, well, we're going to try him in Prince William County and I'm going I'm to seek the death penalty and that's the end of that. And of course he got it as he normally did when he asked for it. Bob Haran, the Fairfax County Commonwealth's attorney, had a similar reputation to his Prince William counterpart. He and Ebert were close friends. In addition to the agreement that Ebert would get Muhammad and Haran would get Malvo, it was also agreed that Ebert and Haran would swap defendants after the trials. So Ebert and Haran would prosecute both defendants before any other jurisdiction got them. Gansler was going to have to wait a while. One day, Malvo was brought to the Fairfax County Courthouse to be interviewed. He was met by June Boyle, a Fairfax County police detective. She was joined by Brad Garrett of the FBI. Boyle and Garrett thought they might get something from Malvo because they learned he had been talking freely to guards while in jail. They were right. Malvo dropped the mime act from his previous interview and was way more talkative with Boyle and Garrett. Malvo asked early during his sit-down with Boyle and Garrett whether he could have an attorney. The investigators said they wanted to get some background information from him first. He talked about his allegiance to Muhammad. He talked about Louis Farrakhan. When it came time to talk about the case specifically, Malvo was read his Miranda rights. He was told he could have a lawyer present. He agreed to talk without a lawyer present. He was asked to sign a form. He printed an X on the dotted line and started talking. He was asked four times whether he wanted an attorney, and all four times he said he did not. At one point, he told the investigators, quote, If I don't want to answer, I won't. He described his crimes in detail and without any hint of remorse. He said he had no friends, just allies. He used a lot of military and war lingo. He said when he got caught, he failed because it was his responsibility to serve as a lookout. Malvo was a geyser of information, and he sounded braggadocious throughout the interview. The prevailing conclusion moving forward was that Malvo, based on his statements, was the trigger man for most or all of the shootings. The interview he gave to Boyle and Garrett certainly contributed to that conclusion being made by prosecutors, investigators, and the media. While all of those incriminating statements were being made, Malvo's first court-appointed attorney, Todd Pettit, learned that Malvo was being interviewed without his presence. Pettit raced to the government building in Fairfax and tried to get inside. According to Virginia attorney Tom Walsh, who later would be appointed to the Malvo case, Pettit was not let inside. He was literally locked out. 
Todd had the wherewithal to go over to, to try to stop the interrogation and try to talk to his client first, because at that point it was his client also. And he pounded on the door and tried very vociferously to get his way into where the interview was being conducted and to try to get an opportunity to talk to Lee, but he was denied. Pettit, who was now a judge, was threatened with a trespassing charge, but he continued to stay on the premises and pound on the door shouting, demanding, cajoling, doing whatever he could to courthouse officials to gain entrance. He was not arrested, but he was never allowed inside. Attorneys for Malvo tried to suppress those statements that he gave to Boyle and Garrett, and a two-day pretrial motion hearing was held, but the judge overruled the motion. Jurors were going to hear it. Todd Pettit did not remain part of Malvo's defense team, Walsh was appointed along with his law partner, Mark Petrovich. Virginia attorney Michael Arif was also appointed, and all three of them had experience with capital murder cases. But the circuit court judge who was appointed to the Malvo case, Jane Merrim Rausch, who later served on the Supreme Court of Virginia, decided to appoint another attorney to represent Malvo, one who had experience not only with death cases, but with juvenile death cases. She turned to Richmond attorney, Craig Cooley. She called me out of the blue, and I'm in Richmond. She's in Fairfax, and she said that several folks had mentioned me to her and that she needed somebody with a great deal of capital trial experience, a lot of gray hair, and no ego. <laughs> so I assured her that my lack of ego was well justified. And I had had, at that point, I'm thinking 67 capital cases at that point in time. Roush made sure to give Cooley the hard truth about what was in store if he chose to take the case. She said, this is going to be a year out of your life. This is going to change your life. Things will be difficult for you and your family because the media pressure is just unbelievable. Anything we do is massively covered and you need to be prepared for that. And the rest of your practice is going to suffer if you take this appointment. The appointment of Cooley did not sit well with everyone. April Carroll was the senior ATF special agent assigned to the sniper investigation, and she would later be assigned as an investigator on Bob Haran's team. She was on the front line, so to speak, throughout the pre-trial and trial process. She told me that the Cooley appointment was another example of Judge Roush stacking the deck against the Commonwealth. I hope you're enjoying Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers, a podcast launched earlier this year through Law and Crime and now distributed by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. This is your host, Tony Holt. If you're liking Chasing Ghosts so far, I encourage you to leave a rating and review. I wanted to take this time to make a special announcement. Next month, following the conclusion of Chasing Ghosts, the Democrat Gazette will launch my next podcast, The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. Episodes for The Devil of Pope County will be released every Monday beginning in mid-November. The trailer is coming soon. Stay tuned.
Judge Roush from the beginning made everything for the prosecution more difficult than it needed to be. And one example of that was just in, in determining additional counsel, where Melville was well represented by lawyers in Fairfax, very seasoned lawyers. And yet she wanted to bring in one from Richmond who had this background with juveniles and the death penalty. And I felt like that was just a CYA for her to go to an extreme to say, I did everything possible to save his life. The judges in both cases agreed that a change of venue was necessary. The residents of Prince William and Fairfax counties were directly affected by the sniper shootings, which made selecting impartial jurors nearly impossible. The Richmond area was ruled out, too, for the same reason. So the trials were moved to Tidewater, more than three hours from northern Virginia. Muhammad's trial was assigned to Virginia Beach, and the Malvo trial was moved to Chesapeake. You would think that decision, along with the breadth of evidence, witnesses, and testimony involved in the trials of this magnitude, would add more time to the pretrial phase. But not only did the trials start less than a year after Muhammad and Malvo were arrested, almost unheard of in murder cases, but the decision was made, ultimately by Judge Roush, to have them overlap. Jury selections took place in the fall of 2003, just weeks apart. The Commonwealth's attorneys in both cases were relying on the same evidence, which in and of itself was a logistical nightmare. At one point during the Malvo trial, the Commonwealth entered the Bushmaster rifle as an evidence exhibit, but they had to use a replica because the Muhammad trial jurors in Virginia Beach were deliberating and they had the rifle in the room with them. The exhibits were one thing, but to have so much evidence gathering for two trials in such a tight window was a unique challenge. This absolutely felt like a sprint. First of all, even if you just isolate discovery material, and when you talk about 100,000 leads and 16,000 investigated of those 100,000, and then what's the exculpatory part of it? And so we had junior lawyers from Prince William and Fairfax assigned to sit with us at the task force, and we literally went through boxes and boxes and boxes just for that aspect. And then we had our intelligence research specialists going through the link charts and the bus data and, you know, where were they from this period of time? We started with February of 2002 until they were caught. And so you had a team that was scouring the country for like shootings, unsolved shootings of this kind, you know, to try to put together the backtrack part of it. And so it was a lot. It was intense. And we had 25 task force officers full time on this during that time, plus two analysts. And then the number of attorneys that came and go, I could even tell you. There were a lot of developments and distractions during the months before the first juror was selected, and the media were there to track it all. This next clip gives you a sense of how intertwined the two trials were, the intense media interest the case generated from some of the biggest news outlets in the world, the amount of work it took to collect all the evidence in time for the start of the trials, and how the tension was building among prosecutors tasked with attaining convictions and death sentences for both defendants. And once again, the culprit of this particular drama was Jason Blair and the newspaper he worked for at the time, The New York Times. He reported, again relying on an unnamed source, that prosecutors were preparing a case 
based on the theory that Malva was the shooter for all of the slayings. This segment was pulled from an episode of CNN's Anderson Cooper 360, and it contains statements from one livid prosecutor. There was a rare display of fireworks in the Washington area sniper case, rare because prosecutors hardly ever utter more than bland generalities about their upcoming cases. Most of the time, they limit their words to no comment. Well, today, though, Virginia Commonwealth attorney Robert Horan had a lot to say about an article in Sunday's New York Times suggesting young Lee Malvo was the trigger man in all the sniper shootings. The distinction, an important one, because it has a bearing on the death penalty case against the older man, John Muhammad. After saying he's reluctant to pick a fight with the company that buys its ink by the barrel, Mr. Horan did just that. We've got people still working this case. Investigators out at the task force in Centerville who were working night and day to pull these cases together. And it's unfair to them for people to be releasing false information under the theory that you know something about these cases and you're a reliable source. Well, wherever this source was for the New York Times was not a reliable source. I have tried homicide cases in Fairfax County for 36 years. And I can tell you without qualification, without hesitation, I have never known a time where one of the Fairfax investigators was releasing information like this pre-trial. They don't do it. It's contrary to the general orders of this department, and they don't do it. I've never known them to do it. And why they would start doing it now, I just don't believe it. It's not the facts. I'm just not going to get in the business of telling you pre-trial what the facts are. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to tell you that whoever put that stuff out is putting out information that is simply untrue. And I want the media to know that, particularly the media that follows like lemmings behind the New York Times and says whatever the New York Times says, as if it's gospel. Jason Blair, as I mentioned before, would be fired by the Times for various reasons, including cooking up sources and facts and inserting them into stories. But the Times story did amplify one mystery that to this day has never really been solved. Who was the primary trigger man? Did Malvo shoot every victim? Most of them, some of them. Muhammad never said, and Malvo's stories keep changing. Malvo's attorneys insist that Muhammad pulled the trigger of the Bushmaster many times himself. As for the phony Blair story, that wasn't all that Haran had to contend with in the months leading up to the trial. Malvo's attorneys announced to the world during a pretrial hearing in the summer of 2003 that they would be pursuing an insanity defense for Malvo, alleging that he was under the spell of John Allen Muhammad and that he was manipulated to such a degree that he could not discern the difference between right and wrong. You'll hear more about that in the next episode. Not all of the zaniness was restricted to the Malvo case. The Muhammad case had its share too. Muhammad was on trial for the October 9, 2002 slaying of Dean Myers, but prosecutors introduced evidence from several more sniper shootings. The Commonwealth did so to meet the requirements of the terrorism charge that would make Muhammad eligible for a death sentence upon conviction. Muhammad's own defense team was made up of two veteran defense attorneys, Peter Greenspun and Jonathan Shapiro who had vast experience representing clients charged in capital cases, but they would be relegated to the sidelines. Many of those who investigated the case collected and analyzed evidence, 
and even one person who was shot by the DC snipers and survived, were called to the stand, and they had to answer questions from the mastermind himself, John Allen Muhammad, who insisted on serving as his own attorney. Paul LaRuffa, the owner of Margelina's, the Italian restaurant in Clinton, Maryland, whose laptop and money were stolen after he was shot five times, was one of the first witnesses called during the Muhammad trial. At one point during his cross-examination of LaRuffa, Muhammad said directly to the witness, quote, I understand how you feel when your life is on the line. That drew a stern warning from the trial judge, Leroy Millette, who told Muhammad never to make such a statement again. More than a few spectators in the courtroom were aghast when they heard Muhammad say those words. LaRufa maintained his best poker face, but he may have been too shocked to react. The fact that he said what he said was, was shocking to me, that if he in any way thought that there was a comparison between him facing the death penalty and me facing death from being shot, you know, it was just insane. It was a crazy comparison. Among the throngs of media covering the trial was Andrea Budin, my former co-worker, who was now a Virginia prosecutor herself. She discussed with me the gall it took for Muhammad to ask such a question. But what I have learned over the many years of both covering homicides as a reporter and prosecuting people in general, and I find often people who commit murders have an amazing ability to retell the story to themselves that puts themselves in an innocent position and then to repeat that over and over until they believe it to be the truth. I think, and it's speculation, but I think that he had done something like that and that allowed him to look someone like Paul LaRuffa in the eye and say, I understand how you feel when your life is on the line without any kind of shame or guilt or embarrassment. Muhammad's audacious behavior wasn't the only thing that was causing problems during the three days he served as his own attorney. Greenspun and Shapiro were still in the courtroom serving as standby counsel. There are restrictions involved when it comes to serving in that capacity, but the size of the courtroom in Virginia Beach made adhering to those restrictions difficult, at least for Muhammad and his attorneys. The rules for standby counsel are that you are to sit there with your mouth shut until the defendant turns and asks you a question and then you can answer and assist based on that question. That was not happening that first day. It was clear to everyone inside that courtroom that Muhammad's attorneys were coaching Muhammad. Ebert and his team objected when they observed Greenspun and Shapiro consulting with Muhammad without any initiation from the defendant. To Ebert, it looked more like hybrid counsel. The judge agreed with him. Following a meandering opening statement by the defendant, the inappropriate questions, and the overly eager defense attorneys who wanted to try the case rather than sit quietly while their client kept stepping on one landmine after another, the judge decided he had seen enough. Millette politely told Muhammad, quote, now maybe it's time for the professionals to continue with the case. Perhaps surprisingly, Muhammad agreed, and his attorneys took over they still faced a steady stream of witnesses and evidence. Prosecuting someone by applying a terrorism statute that was introduced into Virginia law in the wake of 9-11 was a challenge. It was uncharted territory, and it has not been used again since. But by the end of the trial, 
After so much damning evidence, a conviction seemed imminent. And in November 2003, jurors returned after a few hours of deliberating with a guilty verdict for all charges. Next up was the penalty phase, arguments and testimony that jurors must hear before deciding on recommending a sentence of life in prison or death by lethal injection. There were heated discussions between the Commonwealth and defense about how much testimony would be allowed. Muhammad was on trial for the Dean Myers slaying, but the Commonwealth wanted to call family members of victims from other shootings to the stand. The defense, for obvious reasons, objected to that. The judge openly worried about the time it would take for jurors to listen to all of that testimony during the penalty phase. Additionally, there was not a lot of case law that the Commonwealth could point to that would compel the judge to include victim impact testimony from shootings that Muhammad wasn't charged with. But in the end, the judge allowed it. And there were a lot of tears shed during that testimony from those on the stand, from those in the jury box, and from those watching. Muhammad remained stoned-faced throughout until his attorney gave his closing. Jonathan Shapiro told jurors, quote, Death means saying there's no hope. That statement, combined with the videos of Muhammad playing with his children, portraying him as a caring and nurturing father, and Shapiro quoting from the letters on behalf of Muhammad's loved ones, caused the only emotional reaction from the defendant during the entire trial. Muhammad wept. After five and a half hours of deliberating, the jury recommended death for John Allen Muhammad. After the trial, Paul Ebert spoke to the media. Death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst, and we think and Mr. Muhammad uh, fell in that category, and the jury uh, agreed. Obtaining a death sentence for Lee Boyd Malveaux would prove to be much more difficult. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. And there was this part of me that just kept looking at this kid and thinking, what went wrong? At one point, she went off script and said, you are evil. You are pure evil. The jury's decision today, surprising to many. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law & Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.
I hope you're enjoying Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the D.C. Snipers, a podcast launched earlier this year through Law and Crime and now distributed by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. This is your host, Tony Holt. If you're liking Chasing Ghosts so far, I encourage you to leave a rating and review. I wanted to take this time to make a special announcement. Next month, following the conclusion of Chasing Ghosts, the Democrat Gazette will launch my next podcast, The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. Episodes for The Devil of Pope County will be released every Monday beginning in mid-November. The trailer is coming soon. Stay tuned.